Welcome and thank you for joining us for the NAHU Healthcare Happy Hour, the official podcast of the National Association of Health Underwriters. Before we begin, please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or Spotify. The podcast is distributed on these platforms every Friday and is included in NAHU's weekly member-exclusive health policy newsletter, The Washington Update, giving you a head start on your weekly healthcare happy hour. Hello, everybody. We hope you enjoyed the Easter weekend if you celebrate. Congress is out of session this week, but while they're on recess, we have a very exciting guest. On this week's episode of the Healthcare Happy Hour, Marcy and I are joined by special guest, Dr. Daniel Kraft, a Stanford and Harvard-trained physician and scientist, and the host of CVS Health's new podcast, Healthy Conversations. Dr. Kraft, thank you so much for being here today. Before we begin, would you mind telling folks a little bit about yourself? Well, great to be here. I grew up in the D.C. area. Got my start in science at the NIH and went off to medical school at Stanford, residency at Harvard, and for the last decade or so really looked at the interface of technology and healthcare and how do we apply the lens of everything from AI machine learning to low-cost sequencing to virtual reality to blockchain to help catalyze the future of health and medicine for you know the individual, for the consumer, for the payer, at the interface of these technologies, which are often moving exponentially quickly. And it's often challenging for, for folks, whether it's in the insurance world or the clinical world to understand the pace of these opportunities and, and the way they can come together to address healthcare challenges across the care continuum. But more, I've been recently fortunate to be the, the host for Healthy Conversations, a podcast where we bring uh, thought leaders, innovators from around the healthcare world to look at what are some of the implications of, of COVID and beyond to help bring better health and medicine to, to all of us, and including democratizing everything from testing to therapeutics to clinical trials. There is something that you didn't mention that I would be remiss if I didn't bring up. Were you a finalist to be an astronaut? <laughs> well, growing up in DC, I was lucky to spend uh, as much time as I could at the Air and Space Museum. I actually, even as a small child, went to the Apollo 17 launch and was always enamored with space and never lost the urge to want to be an astronaut. So even through medical school, I did research at NASA Ames and Johnson Space Center. Later, as a resident at Mass General, joined the Air National Guard as a flight surgeon, sort of getting to fly in F-15s and F-16s as an officer, and uh, did a fair amount of work with planning missions to Mars and beyond. And yes, I got to the very last stages of astronaut selection down at Johnson Space Center. And of course, the flight surgeon got medical out. My left eye was like 2150. I had to be 2100 or something like that. So I didn't quite <laughs> have the, the eye acuity, which uh, that was needed at the time. But what I, I love about space, and even in the setting of, of, of COVID, there's a great phrase from Regina Dugan, who used to be head of DARPA, that you know, just like Sputnik sparked the space age, COVID is sparking a bit of a health age. And obviously this pandemic has forced us to collaborate in new ways, meet and, and innovate faster. And it's sort of a, a, we're here on global, on spaceship Earth, we have a sort of aligned mission given our foe and in, in the coronavirus to do things better. And hopefully some of the lessons out of this pandemic will lead to you know, a brighter future and, and silver linings for, for healthcare across the globe. And those are some of the things we're trying to really capitalize on with Two things, COVID sparking this new age in medicine. And some of those things are obviously everyone's talking about telehealth, but there are a lot of other things that have been waived or discontinued during this time that we believe makes it a lot easier to provide care. A lot in the Medicare space 
that we've been working on, like trying to get rid of the observation status for going into a skilled nursing facility. And that's been waived during this time. And so we're getting a lot of examples like that where we can say this was done because of COVID, but now doesn't it make sense to continue this and to beyond? Yeah, I mean, COVID is a catalyst, uh, virtual care, telemedicine, right? HIPAA rules relaxed. HIPAA is a good example. If any of your listeners out there can take that sort of pre-digital age, well-meaning regulation and 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 hopefully keep augmenting it to, to match our digital age. It's supposed to be not just healthcare portability, not just privacy. And I've seen many examples of patients dying with their privacy intact, which is not probably what their desire was. But yes, I mean, the example in telehealth is a, is a clear one. And I think it's given us the opportunity to see how we can accelerate and, and match the needs that we need and move beyond, you know, the usual physical visit using new digital biomarkers, whether it's from our wearable devices or a pulse oximeter, new ways where we can crowdsource health information, whether it's around COVID testing to even our smartwatches being able to determine who like might may be asymptomatically infected with the flu or, or COVID. And I think the lens here is it's opening our eyes to where technology already is and where it can take us if you align the incentives and you align the regulatory bodies as well. And I think in terms of that, I think it's also changed the conversation on telehealth, which I think most people, when you hear it brought up or something that needs to be done on it, a lot of folks focus on, oh, well, it's for the rural communities. That's what it benefits the most. We just need to get broadband out there. And we know that the rural communities aren't always the ones that are having a challenge with access to care. And that's not the only way telehealth can be beneficial. So it's a great way that this has been sparked to be able to really change that conversation and move beyond just, we need telehealth for rural communities. Well, I think it goes beyond telehealth. So I, I chair medicine for Singularity University and run a program called Exponential Medicine, where we look at, you know, where is likely, quote unquote, telehealth or going from 5G to 6G or the fact that now we have, you know, SpaceX launching satellites that are providing broadband to you know rural California to rural Rwanda. And to get folks to think beyond telemedicine is just seeing your doctor or a doctor on the screen, but the fact that it's going to blend, it's already starting to with sort of AI chatbots that can do the first set of 20 questions and do triage, and they can match the individual based on age, culture, language, uh, and beyond. And to think about, you know, broadband is one element, you know, whether it's your kids trying to do Zoom school, which may not be possible in many rural communities, or to do a FaceTime visit with their nurse practitioner, to think not just about the social determinants of health, which are certainly important, and we've learned to recognize some of them and the huge disparities, but also the digital determinants of health. Does that individual have access to a smart device or tablet? Do they have broadband? Is it in the right language? Uh, is it meeting them at their educational level? I'm here in Silicon Valley. We think, you know, everyone has an Apple Watch and drives a Tesla. You know, it doesn't necessarily translate to Oklahoma or Panhandle of Florida. So lots of opportunity to kind of go beyond standard telemedicine and, and, and start to integrate these tools across public health, prevention, wellness, diagnostics, therapy, uh, and even you know accelerating clinical trials and bringing solutions to market faster. So you mentioned before the word blockchain, and I'm wondering, so me and probably a lot of, of our listeners, blockchain is sort of like a tech buzzword that we don't really understand. I've heard it used about Bitcoin, but that's about it. How does blockchain technology factor into these innovations you were just talking about? Yeah, I'm, I'm not a blockchain expert that I've learned and forgotten about it many times, but essentially it's a, a platform technology of which cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin live on top of, a sort of a, a ledger that can't be manipulated. It sort of tracks where it could be a transaction. And where this gets powerful is that you can now have sort of immutable records. It might be tracking someone's 
COVID vaccine history and tying that to potentially a digital passport. It might be used for clinical trials. It's going to help understand who's accessed a record, who might have changed it. And so it's a really powerful technology for enabling privacy, enabling smarter data sharing in much more controlled ways. My favorite example of you know, where we can go with healthcare and healthcare data, because data is a bit of this new currency, a lot of it's siloed inside payer systems, inside pharma, inside hospital systems and EMRs that don't talk to each other, is, you know, not to just create exponential amounts of data, but translate that to, to knowledge and insights that can then translate to the point of care, whether that's on your home mobile phone or your corner pharmacy or in your ER or ICU. And to almost think about leveraging data and, and being a data donor and opting in, you know, using blockchain type permissions, so that we can all build like a Google Maps or Waze for healthcare. Think about how our driving has transformed. 15 years ago, we drove around, whether the DC Beltway or else, using paper maps. Now you couldn't imagine driving without Waze or Google Maps, which is using sometimes pretty private data, your speed and location, to build a better map of where's the traffic, where's the speed trap, et cetera. Imagine if we were better able to share our healthcare information, whether it's around a COVID therapeutic or a mental health or other element in smarter ways that we can, again, build a map for each of us and our patients' journeys that really match what they need. And we're starting to see those sorts of examples bubble up and become quite impactful. Some of that data point, I think, is going to come from so many of the transparency legislation and regulations that are coming out that are requiring this data to be reported. It hasn't necessarily gotten to that point where it comes together on the back end where things are able to talk to each other and provide that data roadmap that you were describing. But I think we're getting to the point where, and I know some people who are listening are, will be frustrated about the new reporting guidelines and, and more things that the data is asking for. But I think it does lead to getting to a quality result once we are able to get some of that more information. Um, and like you said, not just die with our privacy intact, actually live a better life. And understand what quote-unquote data information is really valuable, right? Health insurers underwriting is all often about targeting a particular incentive, whether it's preventing rehospitalizations or paying for this or that based on some metric. A chemotherapy agent, you know, does it enable the patient to live for two more months or does it really impact their quality of life in new ways? And now we can start to use you know, digital biomarkers from your wearable devices or your internet of medical things connected home to start to measure quote-unquote outcomes that might be more meaningful than some of the other measures that were done. So what kind of data do we capture is important. Sometimes it can be captured in claims data. Sometimes it's much more subtle and, and may be collected in, in new forms. It can engage the, the consumer, the member, the, the citizen to hopefully engage with that data so that they can be more empowered. And no one wants the raw data. Let's say you're you know, a payer or a patient or a physician. You don't want the data. You want the actual insights from that. And hopefully those insights are gleaned from you know new studies like the NIH All of Us trial, kind of a million volunteer Framingham on steroids, where people are sharing everything from their genome to their medical records to their digital exhaust. I'm, I'm a data donor for that. And they actually provide information back. I think that's where this is all heading. And, and many folks in your association can help catalyze that and enable it, enabling the data to sort of flow when it can and to combine forces because we'll gain new insights with AI, machine learning, and, and other ways to, to take complex information from multiple sources and, and gain new insights. Yeah, I agree. That's something that we talked about last week on our podcast. We talked all about transparency, and it is important. You don't just want raw data, especially as a, as a patient, as a consumer of healthcare. You want to be able to see not just what the price might be, but the quality outcome as well. And we'll be able to actually have that for the consumer if we have all this data ready to go. And what's interesting now is some of the you know, larger payers, they're really starting to build platforms that are more engaging. I'm a physician. I have trouble reading my medical bills, you know, or those of my family. 
how do we match those interfaces and, and enable that shift as we're going you know, from volume to value to, to start paying for and rewarding you know, prevention and precision wellness, starting to leverage some of the tools, the, the Human Genome Project 20 years ago, and now the price of sequencing is coming down at twice the rate of Moore's Law to essentially less than 200 US dollars today, uh, maybe soon less than the cost of a, a blood count or x-ray. How do we leverage that in, into care and proaction? How do we leverage this idea of polygenic risk scores to identify folks early in life, you know, what the risks are for diabetes, hypertension, neurologic disorders, and to guide their care and pay for different levels of personalized prevention and screening as opposed to the one-size-fits-all sick care model we have today. And I always like to sort of summarize where we can go from our sick care model, where we sort of pay for disease, to true healthcare, moving from intermittent data, usually only collected in the four walls of the clinic or the ER, uh, and leading to our reactive mindset, waiting for a patient to show up with a heart attack or stroke or late-stage cancer, to leverage a lot of our tools that are healed today to be more continuous with our data, make that much more personalized, proactive, and start to bring care anytime, anywhere, at lower costs, with arguably better outcomes, and to democratize that around the planet. And you were mentioning earlier social determinants of health and health disparities that have been highlighted by the pandemic. So do you see these innovations that you're talking about as ways to address those gaps in between different portions of the U.S. and the care that they're getting? Sure. This idea in, in, in the data world of sort of hotspotting, you can find areas, sometimes just looking at, at maps, right, where there are food deserts, you know, in a sense, or where we can identify disparities, you know, where your zip code is more important than your genetic code in terms of lifespan and what might be the underlying elements. Sometimes it's access to good, clean water and food and education or challenges of, of getting normal screening, whether it's for hypertension or diabetes. So when you can identify those hotspots, you can then potentially move some resources there to be proactive and not wait for someone maybe even a diabetic to end up in renal failure or needing dialysis or addressing mental health issues proactively. So again, I think tremendous opportunity to, to understand disparities in new ways and then to hopefully address the underlying elements, many of which are, are basic public health based, aren't necessarily high tech or big data based. Many of the folks who are listing, you know, payers who can come together and underwriters who can understand that all ships rise together if we pay for early child uh, nutrition that can prevent uh, downstream obesity and diabetes or, or better screening for a number of conditions, that's not normally where our healthcare system has gone. We pay for diseases late. I think we can start to help all ships rise if we sort of shift some of the focus to really meaningful interventions, particularly that are aligned with the challenges with social determinants and even the digital determinants of health. Moving in that direction, in terms of, we've talked a lot about certain innovations with data and such. I'm wondering, are there any innovations that would perhaps affect the insurance market on the horizon, certain models of care by physicians that you think are coming into play now and look very exciting and promising? Well, sure. I mean, one of the examples, the acceleration of, of virtual care, moving from you know hospital to home or hospital to hospital, you know, admitting patients to the home where arguably it's less expensive, they don't have some of the hospital-acquired uh, infections and others, that is accelerated even starting to happen before COVID, I think those are certainly going to affect the insurance and, and payer world. I think the ability to address mental health, this fascinating world of digital mental health uh, platforms like Marrow Health and, and MindStrong and others using new forms of biomarkers from how you're moving and typing to your heart rate variability and connecting to you to human psychologists or even virtual ones and group connections that can impact that realm. I think there's a lot of new sort of digital therapeutics. You don't need to always prescribe a drug or a device. You might prescribe an app to help manage 
children with ADHD. There's now a video game FDA approved to, to treat ADHD without the standard Ritalin or digital therapeutics to help manage and prevent smoking or reduce stress or improve sleep. And I think, you know, part of the future world is the payer is going to start to pay for some of these new digital therapeutics and platforms and solutions. There's so many of them out there now, it's almost hard to track. I've been trying to do that. I've launched a new platform. The website is literally called digital.health. Digital.health is a bit of a, a digital health formulary where my vision for the future is when you see your clinician virtually or otherwise, they might, again, prescribe you a wearable or an app or a connected blood pressure cuff or a mindfulness app that will help address your particular needs. And that data can flow back into the workflow of the often overwhelmed you know, doctor, nurse, pharmacist, physical therapist, et cetera. I need to get my hands on that ADHD video game. <laughs> <laughs> Don't we all in, in, our, in our distracted age? What's interesting is like precision medicine or personalized medicine, it's not one size fits all. I mean, I'm wearing a Fitbit and a Whoop and an Apple Watch, right? Some of them have different apps and layers on top of them, but some work best for me <laughs> or my, my personality or what my carrots or sticks are. That can go to you know the attention economy as well. And given that we now touch so many consumer devices and the fact that Apple and Facebook and Amazon and Samsung are all heavily into healthcare, we can think about this world where we don't just wait to go to the, to the doctor when it's too late. We're increasingly engaging with these tools to help nudge us in, in the directions where our behaviors, you know, too much smoking, alcohol, not enough sleep, too much stress, we can start to get insights and, and get some nudges that are personalized. You know, personalized AI coaches are emerging that really can help move the needle over time rather than wait for the disease to reach stage three or stage four. I'd like to rewind a little bit and go back to COVID-19 and potential innovations in the pharmaceutical space as a result of COVID-19. But first, I'm wondering... Personally, how do you feel about the vaccine rollout thus far? What good things are happening and what are areas which need improvement? Well, first of all, you know, we talked about COVID as a catalyst. I mean, it's incredible that, you know, the mRNA vaccines at Moderna, and I was a postdoc at Stanford with the founder of Moderna, I just talked to, moved from, you know, sequencing the, the virus in January of 2020 to clinical trials starting two months later to approved uh, trials, vaccines in the market 11 months later. The challenge often isn't now just the pandemic. We actually have an infodemic on top of that. Sometimes just overwhelming amounts of data and information from various news sources to bad actors, you know, the anti-vaxxers out there. I think there was a story the other day, it's actually 12 actors on social media, on Facebook and Twitter, 80% of the source of misinformation about vaccines. And, and yes, you can have some transient side effects, but the risks of getting vaccine are far, 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 far less than the risks of getting COVID from the acute risk of death to the long COVID element. So how we communicate that, obviously we've been in this sort of political arena as well where it's been politicized and you can see differences based on what news sources you reach and, and who had morbidity, mortality, and who's likely to take a vaccine. So I think we need to think smartly, how do we reach the folks who are resistant? How do we not make it a political football? And how do we uh, address the infodemic in smart ways and also address the bad actors who are putting misinformation out there often on social media and can have a, quite the platform without much effort. One interesting piece about therapeutics, you know, there's a lot of early debate and sometimes unproven sources of therapy like hydroxychloroquine, also confounded by the politics. But now there are other drugs like fluvoxamine, you know, an SSRI that's been repurposed that looks very promising in phase two and now into phase three trials for preventing hospitalizations and deaths and long COVID. We're seeing now the idea of virtualized clinical trials. There's a trial for fluvoxamine where if you're early in your COVID course, you can sign up out of WashU. And they FedEx you your, your drug, it could be placebo or the active drug. They send you a pulse oximeter, a blood pressure cuff, a thermometer, and send you a questionnaire every day. And those sorts of things are starting to accelerate 
in this case, repurposed drugs, as well as newly developed therapeutics. And again, that form of digital clinical trials and virtualized trials will hopefully be a silver lining that will accelerate across many, many clinical challenges in the future to help speed up the usual, you know, 10 years to getting a drug approved and help, you know, the 50% of drugs that don't make it past phase one and phase two. That's also being enhanced with new forms of using artificial intelligence to do drug design. So Operation Warp Speed and that approval process for this vaccine, which I agree is pretty incredible, especially from a layperson's point of view. Do you think an expedited timeline like this is doable for future drugs on the market? I think the red tape will come off a little bit because we can see that it can happen faster than it usually does. Well, for sure. I mean, we need a good FDA that's approving drugs, apps, devices that are safe and efficacious. Often, you know, the process of approving things has a lot of red tape and used to be requiring stacks of documents to be shipped. I think we are seeing this acceleration in the regulatory space. The FDA is sort of thinking a bit exponentially, not trying to be the FDA of the 1990s. We do have now the sort of digital health arm of the FDA, where they've created softwares and medical device platforms and a pre-check element to bring things through faster, given that many drugs and other therapeutics have a digital layer to them. So I think things like warp speed will learn from it and will learn to speed up the regulatory systems you know, in the US and around the world. And that will hopefully bring safe and efficacious therapies to market and enable us to monitor them you know, in sort of the phase four realm in the real world side as well. And we have a prescription drug task force, one of our working groups of our legislative council that's been talking a lot about this, as you can imagine, and just talking about the cost of Project Warp Speed versus the cost normally in length of time it takes to get other drugs to market. And then also talking about um, something you mentioned, using drugs for other purposes, not that they were initially approved for. I think they're going to be really excited to hear that you feel as though the FDA is, is now moving forward and not the, the FDA of the 1990s. But what are some of your other thoughts on ways that we can lower the cost of prescription drugs? Well, ideally, we want to be keeping people off prescription drugs in the first place. <laughs> so that comes to you know smarter monitoring, screening, optimization, public health measures, for example. We can leverage new locations for where folks get care. Part of our conversation through all the conversations is a lot of the work that CVS Health has been doing, you know, whether it's smarter ways of doing testing for COVID or now providing health hubs. And you've got other major pharmacy chains as well integrating that you can get primary care, whether it's from eye care to mental health, even veterinary care at some of these centers. But in terms of lowering prescription drug costs, a part of it is you know really matching, again, the individual to the therapy, in this case, a drug. I mean, many folks end up, they have high cholesterol, they end up on a standard statin, and they may have a side effect like myopathy. What if we use their pharmacogenetics? That's low cost, pick the right drug based on their genetics and their metabolism. Pick one that has less side effects and may be at a most appropriate dose. How do we think about even potentially addressing polypharmacy? I, I developed a technology called IntelliMedicine where you can 3D print personalized polypills. Watch my last TED talk about that if you're interested, but the idea that we can start to improve adherence by not having to cut pills in half or thirds and have a pile of them. We can integrate that, maybe even print them at home based on your blood pressure or your fluid status or blood level. So those are a few ways. And I think another element is helping engage the patient to understand, we talked about the infodemic, understand their disease. You know, people don't feel their hypertension or high cholesterol. Using platforms like augmented or virtual reality, they can sort of see inside their body or, or have more insight. They can stay more engaged and understand why these medications may be important to take and, and, and stay on top of. And, and again, 
the new drug is the empowered, engaged individual and consumer that understands their medical condition, is, is a partner in their care, maybe not the CEO of their health, at least the CTO or COO working in conjunction with their clinical teams. I think in general, you know, we can learn from other countries which have much lower drug costs. Obviously, there's different incentives. We can often learn that you can lower costs by better using generics that are off patent. They're often just as effective or more so if we can match, again, the right drug, the right dose, the right timing. There's even this idea around sort of uh, circadian medicine. We often take drugs twice a day, but maybe some are best at really 7 a.m. and 9.30 p.m. for you. So I think if we can do a better job of, of truly doing precision personalized medicine, that means understanding an individual. You know, I've trained in pediatrics. We would dose, you know, four milligrams per kilogram of Tylenol until they're 16, then everyone gets the same dose. Most adults have different elements, not just their weight, but their renal function, their pharmacogenomics. Are they on a statin? How much coffee do they drink? How much red wine? All those things can play a role to picking the right drugs and doses and combinations, which can better help you choose generics when that's possible or on patent drugs. An article in Nature from several years ago that the top 10 grossing medications from big pharma were only really effective in one in four to one in 23 or one in 24 patients. So that's not a great track record. If we can do a better job of really matching and lowering the number needed to treat, for example, Herceptin, only given to breast cancer patients who are HER2 positive. Similarly, other drugs, we're learning when they really start to work. And how do we take the data about the individual, really match that and prescribe most appropriately? And that's going to take, again, a blending of not replacing the, the doctor or the pharmacist or the robot, but helping bring the big data together from omics to microbiome to other data to help really select and pick the right therapies that match the patient, which will then stay on and will end up leading to better outcomes. It is now time for the NAHU Healthcare Happy Hour Toast of the Week. What are we toasting to this week? I think this last year for all of us has had lots of different challenges. And I think what it has catalyzed is, in the positive way, new collaborations, new thinking, accelerations of innovations. And so I would like to toast everybody who's been, in some way or another, helping collaborate and cooperate to address the challenges of this pandemic and hopefully prevent future ones. It's a team sport. And I think the more that we can collaborate and cooperate and realize that we're all in this boat together, you know, sometimes we compete, but it, I think smart competition, beating cooperation can really accelerate and move the needle across the healthcare continuum. And I think the work that you're doing and the fact that we can hopefully toast together and clink in person soon will be the result of a lot of folks rowing together. Even the folks who are rowing in the other direction, we hope, hopefully can turn them around and, and bring them on the boat to clink glasses together as well. Cheers! Thank you for joining us for the NAHU Healthcare Happy Hour, the official podcast of the National Association of Health Underwriters. For more information on NAHU's government affairs efforts or to become a member, visit NAHU.org.